Chapter 3. My Angel in Coveralls Cheryl never did move to her sister's house, but stayed with her new family. The next year, she turned 17, the same month Sam turned 16. He was a junior in high school, and she was a senior. It was the fall of 1967. Fall had gripped the air. The Halloween decorations hung all throughout the school. When you're a senior girl, the most important consideration is who will you take to the senior prom, which was only three days away. Cheryl held no hopes that she would be asked. She was not popular at school because she did not participate in the things that would make her so. She was too shy to join in without being almost forced to participate. Still, her heart ached to go to the dance. Sam was sweet on Jenny, a dark-haired junior from the 7th Ward. Jenny was pretty and a cheerleader, and was popular, bu bubbly, and enthusiastic. Sam was hopelessly smitten with her. He thought Jenny was perfection, wearing lipstick. Sam was now on the football team and had acquired considerable talent in that sport. By his junior year, he was the varsity center, and consequently more popular with the other kids. The best thing about the position was that he didn't ever have to catch the ball, a skill he was still not so good at. He had grown nearly two inches the past year, had gotten contact lenses, and suddenly his broad features and dark hair were attractive. It was as if the old Sam had moved away and his handsome cousin had taken his place. He was still rather shy, but too caught up in the momentum of his new life to be overly affected by it. He and Jenny had planned to go... No, had planned for weeks to go to the prom, and he had arranged for a tuxedo, corsage, and dinner the works. Cheryl watched all of this from a distance. She was sincerely happy for Sam's good fortune, and yet she was saddened that she had not found the same. The night before prom, Sam called Jenny. After a long conversation, a thousand promises, and tears from Jenny, Sam successfully arranged for her to go with her cousin and Sam's good friend, Tim. Sam told her that he had a family obligation he could not shirk and would see her at the dance. Jenny understood and admired him for his decision, but still she was not pleased. The evening was waning to darkness when Sam approached Cheryl, who was sitting in the kitchen table studying for her algebra final. Cheryl, uh, I have a problem. I have spent all this money, see, and made reservations and all... And Jenny says that she has to go with her cousin to the prom because her parents insisted. I was wondering if you would like to go with me. I know we're family and all, but if you weren't, I mean, given other circumstances, I would have liked to go with you. You're real pretty and fun to be with. I mean, what do you think? Go with me? Cheryl laid down her pencil and eyed him dubiously. As a favor to you? To save you money? she asked. Well, yes. She shook her head. I don't believe a word of it. I talked to Jenny yesterday, and she was so excited about the prom she couldn't think straight. It was all she could talk about. Her parents were happy about it, too. Tell me the truth or forget it. Sam gulped. Well, it's sort of the truth, except that I kind of asked Jenny to go with her cousin. I didn't want you to miss the only senior prom you'll ever get to go to. You are more important to me than any date with Jenny, and we will have our own senior prom next year. You can bet that if you say no, Jenny will still go with her cousin just to spite me. <laughs> so you'll be doing me a favor. Cheryl thought about it. Yeah, she would do that, and I probably would too. <laughs> you will have to do some awful fancy footwork to get back into Jenny's good graces. Sam shrugged. He knew what she said was true. Well, as long as it's only a favor to you and not because you feel obligated to take me. As a big favor to me, he echoed. And Cheryl smiled a big smile. 
I don't have a dress. I don't know how to do my hair. I don't have high heels or anything. This is awful. Actually, it's very sweet. She kissed him on the cheek and hurried off to find Emily and Mama Laura. Actually, Sam had already discussed it with them, and they had been working on Cheryl's dress all afternoon. They had lengthened one of Emily's dresses and borrowed a pair of shoes. Preparations were much further along than Cheryl could have ever guessed. That next evening, when Cheryl came down from the stairs, Sam had to struggle to keep his mouth from falling open. Since Christmas Eve a year ago, he had looked at Cheryl as a sister, not as a dateable female. What he saw coming down the stairs could have walked across any beauty pageant stage and won hands down. Her dark red hair was done up with large ringlets falling softly by her cheeks. Her dress was black and was stunning on her figure. Wow, you look fantastic, he gushed. Who are you? Where's Cheryl? She hit him playfully with her handbag. Sam pinned a corsage on her and he pinned a boutonniere on him. She took his arm and they left in the family car. Jim and Laura stood on the perch, huddled against the chill, huddling against the chill and inwardly glowing with contentment. The dance was the highlight of the school year. These were kids in tuxedos and tails and others in leather jackets and faded jeans. Cheryl was graceful on the dance floor. Sam had secretly taken lessons from his mother for several weeks, and he knew the basics. Before long, they were uh, oblivious to anyone else and danced in a cloud of discovery and happiness. It surprised him when he felt a tap on his shoulder. He did not recognize the boy, but the boy was dressed in a suit and looked harmless. Cheryl shrugged and smiled, and so Sam stepped aside. That he was a much better dancer than Sam was obvious from the second step, and Cheryl glided away like magic. Suddenly alone, he thought of Jenny, and after a few minutes, found her dancing with her cousin. Following the stranger's example, he tapped in and was soon gliding around the floor with Jenny. She was pleased to finally dance with him and didn't show any sign of being angry. I understand why you wanted to come with Cheryl, she said finally. It would be a shame for her to miss this. He was so grateful she understood. Look at how much fun she's having. Just then the crowd shifted and he caught sight of her dancing away. Her partner had drawn her close to him and they were spinning around on the dance floor. All he needed to see was that smile on her face to know he needn't hurry back. He and Jenny talked and danced for most of an hour before he again caught sight of Cheryl. The music had slowed and they were dancing very close, except that Cheryl was arching her back trying to keep his head off her shoulder. He was leaning into her with his hands low on her back. Too low. I think I better go rescue Cheryl, he said, nodding toward Cheryl and her partner. Jenny gasped and released him. He immediately walked away. Excuse me, may I cut in? He said, tapping the boy on the shoulder. The look of relief on Cheryl's face was enough to tell him that he had come just in time. No, the boy said, the same moment Cheryl said, sure. He danced away with Cheryl and Sam followed. I'm cutting in, Sam said. Cheryl turned to join Sam, but the partner jerked her back. Please, it's been nice, but I'm tired now. Thanks, Cheryl told him. But the boy wouldn't stop. Finally, Cheryl stopped dancing, and the stranger had to stop also. Sam held out his hand, and she reached for it, but the stranger gave him a menacing look. Sam returned the glare without lowering his hand. The stranger gave Sam a dangerous look. She's dancing with me, and if you know what's good for you, you'll leave. You can have her back when I'm finished with her. Now beat it. Sam took Cheryl's hand without blinking an eye and pulled her away. The stranger shrugged. Well, I guess I lose. He started to turn away, but added, On second thought, you lose. Without warning, he spun on one foot and swung at Sam. Sam wasn't expecting an attack, and the blow caught him on the side of the head. Sam stumbled one step, 
his head ringing and his ear turning puffy. The fellow swung another time, but Sam stepped into the blow, and the boy's fist hit Sam's shoulder. The same defect that made him poor at catching a ball also made him a poor fighter. Sam knew he had one chance to end this fight successfully. He waited until the fellow swung again. He ducked below, beneath the blow and with all his strength hammered the stranger under the chin. The fellow's head snapped back. He fell backward with a loud thud onto the polished floor. Sam took four quick steps and grabbed him by the suit lapels. In a single motion, he lifted him he lifted him until only his toes were touching the floor. The stranger was still grasping for breath as Sam shook him, the boy's head snapping back and forth. Two boys in leather jackets and jeans pulled their friend from Sam's grasp and were about to finish the fight for him when several teachers appeared. They separated them and kicked the stranger and his friends out of the dance. Sam didn't realize the music had stopped until it began again and people started to turn away in disinterest. Cheryl was instantly by his side, inspecting his ear. It was sore, but not bleeding. A cow can kick harder than that fool can hit, he said quite honestly. He should know he had taken several blows from many cows. Cheryl chuckled, put her arms around his neck, and kissed him on the forehead. You really are my angel in coveralls, aren't you? He blushed as he took her hand, and they danced until the band put away their instruments. There weren't many, very many cars in the parking lot when Sam and Cheryl came out. Sam helped Cheryl into the car, but as he was doing so, he spotted four cars parked on the far side of the lot. Only the glow of cigarettes in the dark told him that someone was there. He had a sinking feeling and knew that he and Cheryl were in trouble. He slammed her door, dashed around to the driver's side, quickly slid behind the wheel, and locked all the doors. "'What's wrong?' Cheryl asked in a worried voice. "'I think those punks waited for us. It's a long drive home, and they may be planning something. "'Let's go back inside and call Mom and Dad,' she insisted." Sam thought it was a good idea, but they could see the janitor locking the doors to the school. Cheryl, you pray, I'll drive. We'll be all right. What can they do to us as long as we drive straight home? They surely won't run us off the road. I suppose you're right, she said nervously. Sam started the car and pulled away. After watching for a while, it didn't appear that they were being followed. They began to relax and talk about the dance. They approached an intersection where they had to turn left to go home. If they turned right, it would take them down a long, winding road in the hills, which eventually dead-ended at a lake. When they came to the intersection, they were shocked to see three cars completely blocking the left road. Sam panicked and started to back up, but several cars came up directly behind him, honking their horns. Sam had no choice but to turn right. He knew that the road was a dead end and hoped they could find a way to turn around before the other cars caught up. He gunned the car and sped off. After a mile, the road turned to dirt. Sam didn't dare go too fast, mostly because he didn't want to reach the dead end anytime soon. But he didn't want to find a place to turn around before no, but he did want to find a place to turn around before they caught up. All of a sudden, a car loaded with teenagers roared past them like they were standing still. Before he could react, another car zoomed past, its exhaust squealing loudly. Cheryl screamed in fright and turned terrified eyes on Sam. Whatever happened, Sam told her, his fence Fists clenched white on the wheel. I won't let them hurt you. They want me, not you. When they start on me, run away into the woods. Take off your heels and run barefoot. I've seen you run on the farm. You can really move. You have on a black dress. They won't be able to find you. I couldn't leave you. I couldn't, she protested. You have to. But I won't. Promise me. You will if it comes to that, he nearly shouted. Okay, I promise. If I have to, I'll run, but I won't like it. 
Listen, they can't hurt me too much. I'm tough from football and working on the farm. I'll fight them a little, and then I'll roll up and pretend to be whipped. They'll get tired and leave. I'm afraid what they might do to a beautiful girl in the middle of the night. You must remember your promise. I'm going to get it either way. It, it will only make it worse on both of us if you stick around. Okay, okay, she said in her voice angry. Let's figure out a better solution before it comes to that. At that moment, the two cars in front of them pulled next to each other and braked. Sam had no choice but to slow down. Four cars pulled up behind them, swaying back and forth, honking and flashing their lights. They were obviously spoiling for whatever they had planned. It only took them a few minutes to force Sam to a complete stop. Sam knew better than to get out of the car as the boys from the car, front car started walking back toward him. One of them was the stranger in the suit. He had a baseball hat and his bat in his hands, which he was swinging back and forth. He walked straight up to Sam's car and, without saying a word, shattered the windshield. A million pieces of glass sprayed into their faces and laps. Cheryl screamed in terror. He leaned through the broken windshield on Sam's side, his face plastered with an evil smirk. Cheryl cowered back in her seat. Suddenly, the rear window exploded as someone else smashed it. First, the boy glowed. Glowered? I'm going to beat the living crap out of your boyfriend here and it make it so he never thinks about another girl as long as he lives. Then you and me are going to finish what we had going at that dance, and you're going to like it whether you want to or not. As he was saying this, Sam was praying silently. He knew only a miracle could save them. At the exact moment the threats ended, he had a wild idea. It was impossible, dangerous, foolish, and a hundred other things. But with the idea came a feeling of peace. His father's words rang in his ears. Satan can't imitate peace. Sam lunged forward and grabbed the kid's tie and a part of his jacket. Luckily, it was not a snap-on tie. Sam wound a beefy hand into the fabric so that nothing short of a crowbar could have opened it. With his other hand, he shifted into reverse, grabbed the steering wheel, and simultaneously jammed his foot on the gas. The family car was a new Rambler Ambassador station wagon. It outweighed the punk's cars by almost a thousand pounds. His action was so sudden, so unexpected, that the kids in the... In his grasp, <laughs> the kid in his grasp dropped the bat and screamed in wide-eyed terror. The big V8 engine roared as the car slammed into the car behind them. A side window exploded from an invisible blow. Shouts, screams, and curses were rending the night air. Get down, Shem shouted at Cheryl, who complied the best she could. He jammed the car into first gear and gunned the motor. He didn't dare hit the front cars as hard. He had watched a few demolition derbies and knew that to puncture the radiator was to lose. He picked the smaller of the two cars in front of him and hit it as hard as he dared. It jolted forward six feet. He was hardly aware of the screaming face still suspended in his front window as he jammed the car into reverse and plowed into the cars behind. The car he hit jumped ten feet. Sam jammed into forward and hit the other car. People were running everywhere, trying to get out of his way. There were four cars behind him, and they were having a hard time getting away. Sam hit them repeatedly. Finally, there was an opening between the two cars in front of them, and he sped through the opening, letting go of the punk on the hood just as they cleared the two cars. He saw him flip end over end onto the side of the road. He hoped he hadn't hurt him too much and simultaneously hoped that he was stone dead. Sam steered the car down the winding road in total darkness. He had smashed out the headlights in his escape. Cheryl was sitting up, blinking in the rush of wind through the open windshield. 
That was the most amazing thing I've ever seen, she exclaimed, without taking her eyes off the winding road. I think your dad is going to kill us when he sees what we've done to his new car. Sam thought about this for only a second before replying. Maybe, but I bet he'll consider it a small price for bringing you home safe. She looked at him with a strange expression on her face. You really would have let them beat you up if it would help me escape, wouldn't you? He just shrugged. It isn't over yet. This is a dead-end road. I doubt they will give up after I messed up the cars like that. We have to figure out something else. After what seemed like too short a time, they arrived at a small campground on the lake. It was deserted. When they pulled into the parking lot, six other cars immediately surrounded them. Sam couldn't tell if they had been followed because the punk's headlights were also smashed. This time, they pulled in bumper to bumper. Sam gunned the big engine, but the wheels just flipped gravel and billowed smoke. It was no use. Okay, this is back to plan A, he said. He reached up, ripped the dome light off the ceiling with one effortless movement. When I jump out, you wait five seconds and head off the other way. If you do it right, they won't see you. Remember, you promise, no matter what you hear, keep running. Cheryl nodded, wide-eyed, tears streaking her face. He pushed his door open a few inches he, he, the few inches he could and climbed out onto the hood of the car that was blocking him. A head appeared, and he kicked it. Whoever it was fell backward and didn't return. He jumped up onto the roof of the car blocking him, jumped over a baseball bat that swung, that someone swung at his legs and ran down the trunk. He didn't even look back to see if Cheryl had followed his instructions. He had his work cut out for him at that moment. He knew where he was headed. He had spotted an old fire pit not far away, and it had branches hanging out of it so that he could use to use as a club. He almost made it, but was not fast enough. Someone tackled him from behind. He fell, skidding forward, someone clinging to his legs. He easily pulled a leg loose and kicked the offender in the face. Just then, a terrible blow landed on the side of his head, and he was momentarily dazed. He could feel other blows coming down on him. He could feel himself contorting, trying to roll into the fetal position. He had never felt such pain, and his mind seemed to grind to a stop. Sam forced himself to think. His vision cleared just as a fist came at his nose. Reflexively, his hand shot out and caught the fist. He closed with all his strength and twisted. He felt the other's bones breaking, accompanied by a scream of pain. It was a sickening feeling, but he was fighting for survival. He rolled onto his knees and was immediately bowled back over by a kick to the ribs. The only thing that was saving him was that there were too many attackers on him to swing a weapon without hitting one of their own. It was a small consolation. Blackness was just about to overcome him when he saw a body fly over his head. He dimly heard someone curse and then, and the beating seemed to slow and suddenly stopped. Dimly, he identified the sound of another fighting going on nearby. He had a sinking thought that Cheryl had returned, but the blows were too solid. His vision cleared a bit, and he saw a black-coated punk spin away and drop to his knees. Sam sat up and saw his attackers converge on a single person standing in the headlights of an old truck, his legs spread. Whoever it was moved like a ballet dancer, swinging what appeared to be a shovel. The improvised weapon moved too fast to follow in the dim light. It blurred this way and that. All Sam knew was that his attackers were screaming and running away as fast as they could. Within less than a minute, it was all over. Engines gunned and cars sped away into the darkness. It wasn't until his unidentified benefactor leaned over Sam that he realized it was his dad. 
Jim Ahoy still had the shovel in one hand, his eyes weary, and scanning the campground. He examined his son and satisfied that his injuries were not life-threatening, helped him to stand. Sam felt like passing out and throwing up at the same time. He hurt in every part of his body. He took a step and realized he had been kicked in the crotch. Just then, they... They was alarmed to hear a shuffling noise in the darkness just to their right. A moment later, Cheryl trotted into the circle of light, crying with relief and joy. She threw herself into Papa Jim's strong and welcoming arms. She was completely exhausted and emotionally spent, but she was miraculously unhurt. Sam fell asleep on Cheryl's shoulder as they bounced to the hospital in the old truck. His dad said nothing, his face a grim mask of anger and pride. Cheryl told Jim the entire story as he drove. While Jim concentrated on not hitting any bumps that could make Sam groan in his sleep, the hospital treated Sam immediately, administering tests and x-rays, setting his broken bones. When they all returned home early the next morning, Sam went straight to bed and slept for three days. When he finally looked in the mirror, he was surprised to see a black and blue stranger looking back at him. In the final tally, he had four broken ribs, three broken fingers, two black eyes, a concussion, and a zillion cuts and bruises. But he was alive and Cheryl was unharmed. He tried to smile at the thought, but it hurt too much. The station wagon was a total loss. The insurance company took one glance and wrote it off. Most of the punks were caught and punished. Several received prison sentences. They weren't hard to identify. They drove battered cars and had broken bones and bruises the shape of a shovel. Sam later found out the story had been kind of in the newspapers. No. Sam later found that the story had been in the newspapers and on television. He was a kind of hero, which made him feel uncomfortable. Cheryl was in charge of family home evening the following Monday. Sam hobbled downstairs and was greeted by a room full of balloons and crepe paper. A large cake Emily had baked was on the coffee table. On its surface, Emily had very carefully crafted a frosting angel wearing coveralls. Cheryl's lesson was a retelling of their experience. None of them had actually heard it from start to finish, and they all listened with rapt attention. She was gushing in her praise of Sam and of Papa Jim. When the telling was all done and they were about to kneel for family prayers, Sam asked the question that had been tickling the back of his mind for days. Dad, where did you learn to fight like that? You weren't in any of the armed forces. How did you do it? How did you find us? We were miles off the road to home, and it seems like a miracle you even found us. Jim straightened in his chair considered his answer. Well, son, we called family prayers about 11 o'clock that night, and while your mother was praying, I had a feeling come over me that something was very wrong. It was just a feeling, but very clear, and I knew you two were in danger. I didn't wait for the prayer to end, but jumped into the old truck and drove toward the school. As I went, I prayed. You know how the Lord and me are. I do everything he says, and he makes it rain on my crops. Well, I needed some rain, and I told him so. Laura smiled at this, then nodded for her husband to continue. I about drove past the turnoff to the lake when I felt a strong feeling that I should turn up there. It was a long shot, I knew it, but I had asked for help and it seemed absurd to ignore it when it came. When I turned onto the road, I knew I was on the right track when I saw hubcaps, fenders, and glass all over the road, about halfway there. I drove as fast as I could until I came up to the station wagon surrounded by cars. From its condition, I know you had tried to get away by bashing into them. Jim grimaced at the memory, then continued. It was also obvious you hadn't been entirely successful. I saw a pile of guys off to the side and knew you were under them. 
As I was getting out of the truck, I had the thought to grab the irrigation shovel. I did, and when they came at me, I just did everything I was felt impressed to do. I swung, ducked, kicked, punched, and fought by the spirit. It was the most incredible experience I've ever had. It was as if I was another person. During it all, I had a perfect sense of calm come over me. When it was all over, I found myself just standing there, holding the shovel. Jim looked intently at Sam. Son, the answer to your question is that I did it by the grace of God. I think this is what Moroni meant when he said God strengthened their arms so that they could defend their families from the armies of the Lamanites, even though they were vastly outnumbered. Jim gazed around the room at his family. I'm certain that had we not discussed what we did following Jimmy's accident about listening to the spirit and following directions, even when it's hard to understand, and had I not taken it to heart that both you and Cheryl would have died out there. Everyone in the family somberly nodded. Then Sam said, You know what I don't understand, though, Dad, is the difference in promptings. You described the feelings you had as being quite clear. I can see how that could be the Holy Ghost directing you to come save us. But for me, the promptings are so quiet, so difficult to hear, so still and small, Jim interjected. Exactly. Sometimes I can't tell the difference between the whisperings of the Spirit and my own thoughts. Yeah, I usually get the bigger promptings, but the little ones I miss a lot. Laura cleared her throat and everyone turned toward her. The same thing had bothered me since Jimmy's passing. There were both kinds of promptings for me that day. I had many little promptings, and I ignored them because I didn't recognize them as promptings. By the time the big one came, I had waited too long, her voice trailed off. I have often wondered why Heavenly Father didn't warn me more loudly so I couldn't miss it. Why even use the still small voice if we are so prone to not hear it? Benjamin interrupted them. We keep talking about two voices, the still small voice and the louder one. Are there actually two voices, or is it just that we have our ears turned low sometimes? And it sounds still and quiet, he asked, a note of confusion in his voice. Jim turned to Cheryl. If it's all right with you, Cheryl, if I take a minute and explain what I think is going on, I know it's your family home evening. Cheryl nodded willingly. Please do. I'm as confused as I can possibly be. I have heard both of these voices too. I always assumed it was because I just didn't don't listen well enough, or that I if I were more righteous, the voice would be louder. Please explain it to us. Thanks, Cheryl, Jim replied. There is only one Holy Ghost, but it seems that he speaks in two different ways. Why, Daddy? Beth explained in unison with Angela. Asked in unison with Angela. Well, you know how Bishop Connell serves as our bishop, but he's also our home teacher? When he comes home teaching, he doesn't act and speak differently than when... No. <laughs> when he comes home teaching, does he act and speak differently than when he's being the bishop at church? Oh, yes. He smiles and laughs more when he's our home teacher, Rachel observed enthusiastically. When he's the bishop, he acts all serious and stuff. Well, it's kind of the same thing with the Holy Ghost. One of the great blessings that Jesus Christ has given us is that the Holy Ghost can also act as the light of truth. Has anyone ever heard that term before? Is that the same thing as our conscience? Sam asked. It is. It's something that every person has, and it is the job of teaching every person right from wrong. This is the still, small voice we keep talking about. We have it because of the atonement. It's one of the many precious gifts from Jesus Christ. The scriptures indicate that one of the reasons Jesus had to suffer so much was so that he would know how to guide us when we have problems. Wow, I didn't know that, Cheryl said, putting her hands on her cheeks and resting her elbows on her knees. 
So does the still small voice only tell us not to steal candy bars and that kind of thing, or does it have another purpose? It has several purposes. In addition to helping us discern right from wrong, Jim explained, the greatest of these, the hardest to learn and to hear, are the promptings to do good things. It sometimes seems a lot easier to hear the promptings to avoid evil than it is to hear the promptings and to do good. You mean like, say your prayers, be kind to someone, that kind of thing? Benjamin asked. I, I've heard those a lot. Sometimes I ignore them because they seem always seem to want me to do something I don't want to do. I thought they were just my own thoughts and not important. I think we have all done that, Ben. I'd like to share a scripture, Jim said. And drawing on his unique memory and love of the scriptures, he closed his eyes and recited. And the Spirit giveth light unto every man that cometh into the world, and the Spirit enlighteneth every man through the world that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit. And every one that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit cometh unto God, even the Father. DNC 84, 46-47. I think the important part here is the last sentence, and everyone that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit cometh unto God, even the Father. That's the whole purpose of life, to return to the Heavenly Father. It says we must learn to hearken or obey the still small voice in order to return to Him. Unless you realize that these promptings are actually revelation from God, then you may feel free to just ignore the ones that are inconvenient. Boy, I do that a lot, Emily commented, but you know what? I always feel kind of empty inside when I do. Me too, several family members said at once. But I'm still confused, Cheryl said as she leaned toward, or leaned forward in her chair. How do I tell the promptings apart from my own thoughts? I always thought that they were just my own thinking. Well, Jim began, here's how I do it. I still miss some, but this helps me. It's like the scripture in Moroni we read in Family Home Evening a while ago. Everything that is good and teaches us to love and serve God and to pray and be kind comes from God. And we should always obey those promptings. Everything that teaches us to do bad, to be mean, to not pray, those things come from the devil. I can see that, Laura interjected. But I also hear confusing things. I hear a lot of discussions, questions, and arguments in my head. I hear the good and the bad, and then I hear myself debating about what it all means. Jim nodded. We all do that. It's my opinion that this is our own mind working. I think what happens is the Holy Spirit prompts us to do good, after that, the devil tries to get us to not do good thing, and then our minds try to decide what to do. What we are hearing is that argument going on in our minds. Hey, Emily said enthusiastically, I think I understand. It's called the still small voice because it sounds like our own thoughts, but it's not, at least not all of it. The Holy Spirit says to do some good thing. It just says, say your prayers or something like that. After that, you hear reasons from Satan why you shouldn't, like you're too tired, too mad to say your prayers. After that, you hear your own voice trying to decide what to do. I get it. This is how revelation works. We get prompted by both sides, and we must decide what to do. Yes, Emily, let me read you another scripture, Jim said. He turned to the Book of Mormon lying on the table and read, And they are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil. For he seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. And now, my sons, I would that ye should choose eternal life according to the will of his Holy Spirit, and not choose eternal death according to the will of the flesh and the evil which is therein, which giveth the spirit of the devil power to captivate to bring you down to hell that he may reign over you in his own kingdom second nephi 2 27 through 29 
I think this is a great key, Jim observed. I believe almost all revelation works this way. That is, that it comes quietly and we receive our greatest blessings by being obedient to what is sort of a divine hint or suggestion. Promptings aren't the same as commandments, but they are personal revelation to us. And anyone who learns to obey them will eventually enter the celestial kingdom. So, Laura added, we choose eternal life by choosing to obey the Holy Spirit, and we choose captivity and eternal death by choosing to obey the will of the flesh, flesh, which is what Satan uses to tempt us. It all seems so clear and precise when you look at it that way. This is... This will sure make it easier for me to decipher the crazy conversations I hear in my head. She laughed and reached for her husband's hand. Jim, this is so exciting to understand. It makes me wonder why we have never understood it before. I think it has crystallized in my own mind only in the last little while. It's been a principle I've apparently been having trouble learning myself. Benjamin had a question. But then, what is the louder voice, Dad? I believe that louder voice is the Holy Ghost, speaking in his role as a revelator. His dad explained, It seems to me that these louder messages are reserved until after we have become fully obedient to the still small voice. Sam was confused. Dad, why do you suppose you hear the louder voice to warn you to come help Cheryl and me? Why didn't you get the still small voice like when Jimmy was in trouble? There was a conspicuous silence before Laura said, I think I can answer that. Since Jimmy's death, I have been—I have seen tremendous change in your father. I can honestly say that I have never seen anyone try harder to hear, obey, every prompting than your dad. I think because of his obedience and faithful heart, it wouldn't have mattered how loud the voice was. I think Jim would have heard and came to save you, even if he had only heard the tiniest whisper from the still small voice. I personally feel that because of his perfectly obedient heart, when a time of danger for you and Cheryl arrived, the Holy Ghost spoke in an unmistakable voice. Perhaps if we use our agency wisely and are obedient in all things, then Heavenly Father will speak to us in a louder voice when it really matters. Well, all I know, Jim said, is that I am grateful beyond words to Heavenly Father for allowing me to come to your aid. It has given me greater faith in Jesus Christ and in the promptings of the Holy Spirit. It has caused me to be even more diligent in obedience. I can honestly say that my cup of joy is full and runneth over. I am sure that this experience was partly to teach us this lesson. And, Cheryl added with great somberness, I'm just as sure that all this was meant to teach me a lesson. Sam was motivated by kindness to take me to the prom, and then he was inspired in the way he handled that awful situation. He was my angel in coveralls. Then Papa Jim was inspired to find us and save us, and he was my angels in coveralls too. Cheryl stopped to think, then continued. Before when I wanted to die, Heavenly Father wouldn't let me. Now that I want to live, I seem to keep getting into life-threatening situations, and God keeps bailing me out. This has never happened to me before. It's more than my poor brain can grasp. Someone please help me understand all this. Benjamin observed, I don't think you... I don't think the war you won at the gas station is over. I think Satan is mad because you got away from him the first time. Six-year-old Rachel raised her hand, and Papa motioned to her. Cheryl, I think it's just Heavenly Father's way of saying he loves you and that you matter a whole lot. You matter enough that he is willing to send angels to save you, Laura added quietly. Angels in coveralls, Cheryl whispered reverently.
The following Sunday was Fast Sunday. In those days, Sunday meetings were held in two blocks. In the morning, priesthood began at 9 a.m. and at 10 a.m. The sisters and children came from Sunday school for Sunday school, which lasted until 11.30 a.m. After that, people went home, fixed, and ate their Sunday meal, did necessary chores, and rested. At 7 p.m., everyone returned for sacrament meeting, which lasted until 8.30 p.m. Fast Sunday usually meant fasting until testimony meeting was over in the evening. It was the first time in Cheryl's life that she had fasted, and her tummy rumbled fiercely. Yet even with the discomfort of hunger, she felt the warm glow she had only recently learned to recognize as the presence of the Holy Spirit. She fidgeted with her hands, fighting the urge to stand and bear her testimony. She desperately wanted to, but could not overcome her fear. There was a long silence during which no one stood. Cheryl was just about to stand when her brother walked past their row. Startled and simultaneously relieved and disappointed, she quickly relaxed. She didn't recognize the man who slowly walked to the stand. He stood before the pulpit for a long time before taking a step closer. Then, with trembling hands, he pulled the microphone toward him. It groaned loudly in protest. I hope y'all will forgive me for coming to the pulpit today, he said, his voice subdued. I knew I didn't have the courage to stand and bear my testimony, but I reckoned I could make my feet walk up here. I just figured once I got up here, I'd think of something to say. A soft chuckle flowed across the congregation. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Ruland Carter. I live across the street from the Mahoys. I've been a member of the church all my life and ain't seen fit to darken the doorway for longer <clears throat> than most of y'all have been alive. This he said with some emphasis, as if he felt some justification for staying away. I ain't proud of it. I never... I knew every Sunday that I should go to church. I'd done raised my whole family without the gospel, and until a short while ago, I didn't care one whit. Before I lose my starch, I gotta tell you why I'm here today. I hope Brother and Sister Mahoy will forgive me, because I sure don't mean to play upon their loss. But I gotta do this if they'll forgive me. Brother Carter looked meaningful at, at Jim Mahoy, who nodded. Brother Carter smiled as if relieved. Not long ago, little Jimmy Mahoy fell in the irrigation ditch and drowned. Y'all know about that. What y'all probably don't know is that I was there. I helped hunt for Jimmy and was standing there when brother and sister Mahoy were trying to get him to breathe. I knew Jimmy was dead, and it made my heart ache as if it had been my own baby laying there. I was about to turn and go back to my house when sister Mahoy looked directly at me and said, Somebody give my baby a blessing. Well, her words drove through me like a sword. I was stunned, because I knew she was talking to me. I looked around. I knew a dozen other priesthood holders were there. When I looked, they all turned away. Laura looked directly at me and said, Brother Carter, you are an elder. You give my baby a blessing. I ain't proud of what I said. I says, I ain't worthy, and you don't know how on account of being inactive all these years. I don't know why she said what she said next, but it was the words that echoed in my mind ever since. She says to me, God will bless my baby. All you have to do is say the words. Well, I kneeled down and asked God to forgive me and not count my sins contrary to little Jimmy. Because God knows, and y'all know I'm a sinful man. Was then and still am now, but I fixed my mind on those words and I knew they was true. I did my best to say the right words and to let God give a baby a blessing. 
Well, I wanted to say beautiful, powerful things, but instead I was saying all the wrong words. The feeling was right, though, and inside me I knew God would bless Jimmy. He paused to swallow back emotion. When he continued talking, his voice was soft. Then Jimmy takes a breath. It was the most fantastic thing I ever heard. Jimmy coughed and started making noises, and he was alive. I knew it was by the power of God what brought him back. Well, they took Jimmy away, and he stayed alive for a couple weeks until God made it right with Laura and Jim. And then he took Jimmy home. But that don't make no never mind to the fact that he came back to life. Now here's the thing that's got me inside this here church after all these years of sinning. It's that God sucker punched me. I know that sounds bad, but it's kind of what he did. You see, I was living my sinful life feeling content and being by being in the wrong place at the right time. I was called upon to use my priesthood. What I plumb forgot I even had. So here I was, kneeling there with some dead baby surrounded by Jimmy's angels, and I put my hand on that baby's head, and by God, he looked past me and plumb poured out the power of heaven into that baby through my soiled hands. Brothers and sisters, I felt it. I was there. I was an instrument in God's hands. When he could have picked a hundred better men, he picked me. I'll live the rest of my life knowing, without knowing why. But by God, by all that's holy and all that's true, I'll live it with my heart and hands clean before God. Maybe it was plum onriness or stupidity or just being too busy. But whatever my reasons was for not serving God before have been flat washed away. So I can't even remember what they all was. Well, I'm here before you all to ask God's pardon and y'all's pardon and the bishops and who else i gotta beg forgiveness to that's what i'll do i'm here to serve god and try to make myself worthy of the miracle what god wrought through my soiled hands brother carter stood there in the stunned silence that followed his eyes misted over and he gripped both sides of the pulpit his head fell and his voice quivered as he said i most humbly bear my witness that god lives and that he loves us I also bear witness that Jimmy's death has brought me salvation. Brother and sister Mahoy, if Jimmy's death means nothing else to me, it's the key to unlock my stony heart. God forgive me for being so wretched that that baby's death was the only thing that could touch me. It's a terrible price to pay. God forgive me. He hung his head and stumbled back to his seat, never lifting his eyes from the floor to see the tears on every face in the congregation.